Amen. It's our prayer every time uh, I come to speak that listen, we're not we're not changed by any word of wisdom that any man can bring. We're changed truly and only by the power of God. And so I'd encourage you, even as as, as you begin to as, as we begin to look into God's word today, I encourage you not only to listen, but I, I encourage you to pray. And right where you're at, just to pray, Lord, speak to me this morning. Well, whatever it is that you need to hear, I've got some stuff written on a paper here. But I pray that whatever you need to hear today, whatever that God is speaking to you, uh, he may speak it into your heart. And the Holy Spirit might do his work among among all who are gathered here. Um, we're looking at Genesis chapter 49. We've been looking at these lives of these patriarchs, these these men of faith, yes, and men of failings as well. And we're getting to the end of the book, and here at the end of the book, uh, the children of Israel, as I said a little bit earlier, are moving into Egypt, and they're moving into a land where God has told them that they are actually going to be sojourning in, uh, they're going to be living amongst as strangers and aliens in this land of Egypt for the next few hundred years. This family, as they know they're moving into the land, they know they're going to be dwelling in the land for the next few hundred years. And so we have here kind of a pause as they're moving into this land. Um, I'm kind of, from last week and this week, looking at two principles for living in a land of a sojourn. They're principles that are important for us because we, as Christians, are taught in the New Testament that we also are sojourners, we are strangers, we are aliens living in this land while we are citizens of another kingdom, while we are citizens of a kingdom that we await that is going to be inaugurated when Christ returns. And so I I look around, I said last week, I look around, we're a church filled up with immigrants and we're a church filled up with children of immigrants. And so we know a bit about sojourning in a land and, 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 and being a peculiar people amongst a, a broader culture. And we want to think through this Christianly. And so this is, we have, we've been talking about two sojourner principles in these two chapters, or these two chapters. Last week we looked at the first principle. Having been called to be a holy nation, God's people must with intention preserve their distinctiveness during their sojourn in a land of idolatry. And really what we focused on last week was those two words, with intention. With intention, actually thinking through our lives as the people of God, how are we going to remain distinct? How are we going to hold on to our faith? How are we going to pass it on to our children? Even as as our children will grow up in this world and in this culture that not only does not know God, but sometimes is antagonistic to the faith. So we talked about things like media and pop culture. We talked about things like where do you send your kids to school? Uh, We talked about, um, you know, those sorts of values. How do you pass our values on to our children? We talked about sending, you know, training our kids up, raising them up in the faith. The principle was introduced and illustrated for us last week in Joseph's intentionality in securing permission from Pharaoh for his family to dwell in the land of Goshen. And here now, in the second part of chapter 47, I should say, 7 we're in, we find a second sojourner principle that we're going to look at today, 
And it's really important for us. And I try and uh, the reason I'm bringing these out is not only because the texts are bringing them out and illustrating for us, but these are so important for us as we are seeking to live as the people of God in Canada. So the second principle that is found here and developed through the Old and New Testaments is this. During the time of our sojourn, we bless our neighbors with our words and work for their good as we watch and wait for God's kingdom to come. During the time of our sojourn, we bless our neighbors with our words and work for their good as we watch and wait for God's kingdom to come. That's what we see as we're just going to go quickly into this chapter 47, the second half. The first thing we see is we see Jacob blessing Pharaoh with his words. He comes in, Joseph brings in Jacob, his father, stands before Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's this is amazing. If you are children of Israel and you're reading this, this is like two titans coming together. You have, in one corner, you have Pharaoh, the divine, you know, sought to be divine, leader of Egypt, the king himself. And then you have Jacob, the patriarch, who's also called Israel, the man through whom your nation gets its name. And just imagine, just even reading about this meeting between Pharaoh and Jacob. It draws you in immediately. Who's going to blink first? Is there going to be hostility between Jacob and Pharaoh? Is there going to be conflict from the beginning between Jacob and Pharaoh? And note this, that Jacob is brought into Pharaoh's presence, and he's brought in as a person, as an inferior, would be brought in before a superior. Jacob's probably pretty frail at this point. In fact, it seems from the passage, he's, he's pretty frail. His sons are kind of carrying him around. Um, and, and, and it would make sense. Pharaoh is the king of the land, so it makes sense that he is brought in and presented before Pharaoh. But what's amazing about this passage and what's instructive to us is that it's not that Jacob is going before the king of the world seeking the king of the world's blessing. It's that Jacob, when he is brought before the king of the world, it is Jacob who extends the blessing to this even considered to be great man. The blessing that Jacob extends is most likely a prayer for Pharaoh's good and through the invocation of God's name. Uh, later, uh, the rabbinic practice required, if a, if a Jewish person was brought in from a king, we're told that later in history, they would recite a special blessing upon being brought before a non-Israelite king. They would, they would pray this, blessed is he, so blessed be God, blessed be he who has imparted of his glory to his creatures. That they would recognize that there is respect due to this leader of this nation, but they would, even in their blessing of them, point them to the God from whom all glory is derived, from whom all authority is derived, and from whom all power is derived. They would, I mean, if you can think about that, that would be a pretty... Uh, if, if you're brought in from a ruler who is claims to be divine himself, and then you come before him and you say, Blessed be the one who's given all glory and power to you. It's a proclamation. It's in fact an evangelistic proclamation. 
of the God who is greater, and, and, and of all of our place, and particularly even the place of the king in God's creation. And so Jacob is brought not as an inferior, we don't see Jacob as an inferior in the text, we see Jacob as a man who has, through many troubles, walked with God, blessing Pharaoh. The significance of the blessing is spelled out in Hebrews 7.7. There's a general principle in the book of Hebrews, it's beyond dispute. It says in Hebrews 7.7 that the inferior is blessed by the superior. But Pharaoh, and Pharaoh himself seems to marvel at the dignity of this man who's been brought before him. The only question we see Pharaoh asking him is, how old are you? It's a weird question that Pharaoh asks him. How many are the year, days of the years of your life? He seems to be marveling at the dignity and greatness of this, of this patriarch, asking him of his old age. And Jacob gives an answer laced with great honesty, humility, and hurt. Jacob says to him, he says, uh, few and evil. He's 130 years old. He says, few and evil have been my life, the years of my life, particularly in comparison to my father's. It's not that Jacob is greater than Pharaoh, that Pharaoh might be blessed by Jacob. It's that the God, the God who has walked with Jacob, the God who has made Jacob great, the God who has carried Jacob through his short and evil life, stands behind Jacob, that Jacob might bless Pharaoh through Jacob and his family. So Jacob, we see here first, just very quickly, we see Jacob blessing Pharaoh with his words as he comes into Pharaoh's presence. And the chapter moves on quickly, though, to see how, ja- how Joseph works for Egypt's good. Whereas Jacob blesses Pharaoh in the same direct and verbal pronouncement of prayer, Joseph blesses Pharaoh and his people by, by working for their good. Remember, Joseph had been raised up to be second in command of the entire country through miraculous uh, opportunity. And so the next, the last rest of the chapter is about uh, Joseph blessing and Israel or Egypt being blessed through this family that's come to settle among them. In verse ten to twelve, um, Joseph settles his family. Uh, it says that uh, he settles them in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now that is weird because last week we've been talking about Goshen, 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 and here suddenly now it's changed. In fact, the word has changed that he's settling them in the land of Ramses. It's a later name. The land of Ramses is a later name for the region of Goshen that Pharaoh has given and offered them last week that we looked at. But it's a pretty significant book, uh, verse, verse 12. And I'm going to digress a little bit from my main point today. In verse 12, it's a pretty significant point for answering a question about the Bible's trustworthiness in accounting for the historicity of the Israelites in Egypt. So some of you guys might not care about what I'm about to say next. Some of you guys, this will be the most interesting part. So, um, But there's a question about the Israelites in Egypt. There's a problem with the Israelites in Egypt. Many, the, the problem is this, basically. Many scholars, archaeologists, and historians, they place um, the exodus of the children of Israel in Egypt in uh, the 1200s B.C. The reason why they do that is because Ramses was Pharaoh in the 1200 BC. Yeah? 
And the reason they did it is because in Exodus 1.11, it says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to inflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh a store city, one of which is named Ramses. And so the idea is, in placing when in history Israel was in Egypt, the idea is, well, then Exodus tells us they built the city of Ramses. Ramses wasn't Pharaoh until the 1200s, and so the Israelites, the Bible must be suggesting to us that the Israelites were in Egypt during the 1200s. The problem is this. we Nobody has found a shred of um, evidence. No one has found one artifact of the Israelites being in Egypt during the 1200s. And so what happens is, the historians um, and the skeptics will say, well, the Bible tells us, because of Ramses, that Israel was in Egypt here. There's no evidence of Israel being in Egypt there. Therefore, the Exodus is just a mythological story. It's, it's made up. It's a story that tells about the origin of the people. It's kind of like folklore, but it's not historical in any way. So that's the problem. However, that's why this verse in Genesis 47.12 is actually really important. Because what it says in 47.12 is Joseph settled his fathers and brothers. So this would be hundreds of years before Ramses. It says Joseph settles them in the land of Ramses. So basically with Genesis 47.12, the significance of this verse basically says he settled in Ramses before Ramses. Alright, some of you guys are looking at what is going on here. What's the significance of that? What it means is, is that basically, at some point, um, whoever was compiling the books of Moses together, anachronistically added a later name to this to these verses. Okay? So, let me give you an example of what that means. Uh, apparently, who lives in Canada? Anyone live in Canada? Gabe grew up in Canada, right? You guys live in Canada? Sweet, what part of Canada? Canada Lakes. All right, gotcha. Have you ever heard, if you live in Canada, do you guys know the town of March? Is it still there, the town of March? You're like, I don't know. Is the town of March still there? Apparently before 1978, Canada did not exist as Canada. Before 1978, Canada was a, a part of the township of March. Okay? And so... Only in 1978 did Kanata become its own kind of thing, I think. This is what Wikipedia tells me, so I don't know. So basically, Gabe, let's pretend your dad grew up. Let's pretend your dad grew up in the house that he now lives in, and he never moved. Right? So your dad always lived there. Okay? And if I ask your dad, hey, did you grow up in Kanata? And your dad said, yeah, I grew up in Kanata. I don't tell your dad, Liar! You did not grow up in the town of Kanata. You grew up in the township of March, which only changed to be called Kanata in 1978. Your dad would probably beat me and throw me out of the house. Right? For calling him a liar. It, it would be more confusing if, you, if I asked your dad where you grew up and he said, well, I grew up in the township of March. And then in 1978, I was living in Kanata. That would be even more confusing because then it would make it sound like he lived in two different places. And so we do this all the time with language. We basically take whatever we know of, we call it Kannada now, we just say, hey man, your dad moved to Kannada in the 1960s. Right? That's what we do. And so the idea is that's what's happening here in Scripture. This is important because at this earlier age, we actually do have 
a lot of evidence and artifacts of people living, uh, people from the land of Canaan, moving into Egypt during this earlier time. Uh, underneath the region and the city of Ramses, there's an older city called Averis. And in Averis, we have evidence of the of, uh, shepherding, uh, shepherds from Canaan moving into the land and growing rapidly. More interesting to me is that the pharaoh during the time of these settlements was a guy by the name of these settlements actually grew. They expanded during this period. More interesting was that the, the pharaoh during this time was a guy by the name of Senerset who reigned with his son Amenemhat. I can't speak Egyptian, so forgive me. And here's where it's pretty cool. Egyptian historians tell us that in the time of these two pharaohs' reign, they, they kind of reigned together as father and son. During these times, um, before this time in, in Egypt, the pharaoh had some power, but most of the power in Egypt was uh, given over to these uh, kind of in, in districts, into these kind of district heads. And suddenly, in the middle of these pharaohs' reign, all of the land, all of the titles, and all of the authorities were transferred over to Pharaoh's Central Governing Council, which history tells us was overseen by a very powerful second-in-command. It's really cool. Of course, Scripture, Genesis 47, gives us a reason. So like, like, generally in history, people don't just willingly give over their land and their titles to kings. Usually there's some resistance or rebellion, but Egyptian history tells us that in this period of time, all the central power was given over to the central power, or all the land and titles were given over to the central power, and there was no resistance, there was no rebellion. It seemed to be given over willingly. Of course, we know why. During the seven years of famine, Joseph began, as the scripture we had just read before, Joseph began selling the food back to the Egyptians that he counseled the Pharaoh to store during the years of plenty. And then they, they brought them first, it says in Genesis 47, they brought first their cattle, and then when they, they couldn't sell any more cattle, they said, we will sell our land. When they couldn't sell the land, they said, we'll sell ourselves. So Genesis 47, 20 says, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of priests he did not buy from the priests that had fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, and therefore they didn't sell their land. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh. Notice how grateful that the, 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 the gratefulness that the people of Egypt have to Joseph because of his good work his tireless work, to save them. And, and through Joseph and through Israel, God has blessed the nation. Joseph worked tirelessly during the land of his sojourn. To this day, in Egypt, um, you can see Joseph's effect upon the land. During the reign of those two pharaohs, there was work begun in a great canal and irrigation system which drew water from the Nile River to irrigate the land uh, the water famished land. And to this day, this canal and this system of canals is still called the waterway of Joseph. It's an amazing testimony to God's work. Through Jacob, 
So we have basically, very easily in this chapter, very, very simply, we have in this chapter, through Jacob's words and through Joseph's work, we have the children of Israel blessing Egypt. However, the last four verses of the chapter both serve as a summary of those years in Egypt and a reminder to us and a reminder to the Israelites of a very important thing. Okay? First, the summary is that the, the Israelites are blessed in Egypt. That's, that's the summary. Verse 47, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. See, again, it's called the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Notice this phrase, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This phrase has come up again and again and again already in the book of Genesis. Right? In fact, when God created, uh, in Eden, he created man and, and male and female, he created them and said, uh, he blessed them and said, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply. And he has said this a number of other times in the book of Genesis. But the, here's the interesting thing. Every other time in the book of Genesis, and I believe it's four other times in the book of Genesis, this idea of be fruitful and multiply is used. It's always used of either a command of something to go and do so that in the future you may be a prosperous people, or it's a promise given by God that they will be fruitful and multiply. But every other time in the book of Genesis, this idea when it's when God says be fruitful and multiply, or you will be fruitful and multiply, it's always about a future that God has in mind for his people. This is the only time in the book of Genesis where he's describing a present experience of his people. And so what Moses is doing here is he's basically saying, here in Egypt, Israel is experiencing, in a sense, the blessings of Eden. Here in Egypt, Israel is receiving, in a sense, a, a partial, at least, fulfillment of these promises. And, and through this chapter, what you see in this chapter, basically, is almost, and I'll say almost, a fulfillment of the promise that God, that started this whole series out, the promise that God gave Abraham. Remember God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you. Well, here you have Israel settled in a nice, prosperous Fruitful land. He says to them, I will make of you a great nation. Well, they came in 70, but here now they're multiplying. They're growing into a great people here. He says to them, I will make your name great. Well, we've seen Jacob, the great one, standing before Pharaoh and God's blessing going through Jacob over Pharaoh. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who, or I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We've seen that. I will bless you who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Basically, what we are to see in Genesis 47 is this partial fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise. And so this is the high point of the book of Genesis of the people who've received the promises actually experiencing, to a degree, their fulfillment. This is Eden in Goshen. There's a problem. What's the problem? Well, look at what Jacob does at, his, at the end of his life. 
When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. And what does he say to him? Do not bury me in Egypt. Carry me out of Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, Joseph answered him, I will do as he said. What Jacob is saying is, what Jacob is basically reminding his son, Joseph, and his other sons to do, to him after he dies, is what he's reminding them is, do not ever think that Egypt is Eden. Do not ever be deceived, even though we've enjoyed prosperity here, even though we've enjoyed success here, even though we've been blessed and have been a blessing here. Do not think that Egypt is Eden. It is not the promised land. It is not the promised land. And so the principle, the principle that we have here is during the time of our sojourn among the nations as the people of God, we have to, number one, pray for and bless with our words the people around us and work for their good and for their benefit, but always keeping in mind, always keeping in mind that this is not the kingdom. That this culture, this country, and this society, and these people, and our neighbors, this is not the kingdom. Even if we enjoy blessing, even if we enjoy prosperity, even if we enjoy success, even if we are fruitful and multiply, this is not the kingdom. We are to pray for it, we are to work for it, we are to love our neighbors, we are to love our enemies, but this is not the kingdom. We cannot forget that there is a greater promise, there is a greater kingdom, and there is a greater king. This is the principle. This is the principle, the sojourner principle number two. As we sojourn among the nations, we seek to bless them and work for their benefit. But we always keep in mind this world is not our ultimate home or place of blessing. We are citizens of another kingdom. So this, this principle you see, as I said, it unfolds through the scripture. So for example, when the children of Israel are in exile in 586 B.C., uh, they're dwelling in the land of Israel, and the, and the nation of Babylon comes in and takes them all into exile. And God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah as they're in exile, and God tells the children of Israel in exile in Babylon, he says, you're going to be held captive here, it's going to be 70 years. 70 years is long enough for at least a couple generations to come and go. But in 70 years, you will be returned to the land. You'll be returned to the promised land. And the, the temptation would be for the children of Israel to say, well, forget Babylon, forget all of our neighbors, forget all these people around us. We're, we're 70 years, we're going back. And what God tells them is this sojourning principle. He says to them, even though it's only going to be 70 years, build houses and live with them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and have daughters. Give your daughters in marriage, they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord for its behalf, on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you see the same sojourning principle? You're here for a short period of time. Your life is a short period of time. This is not the kingdom. 
This is not the promised land. There's going to be something greater to come. But, 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 even though you're here only for a period of time, you work, seek the welfare of the city, and with your words, you bless, you pray for the inhabitants of the nation around you. While you wait for kingdom to come. And, and, and the, the administrator, the, the, the person we have of that era, who's like the greatest example of what does that look like, is Daniel. Right? Daniel, who, who preached, was it, seven times a day, Daniel got down on his knees, he prayed, thy kingdom come, right? He prayed that the kingdom would be restored, he prayed that the promised land, his people would be reestablished there, and he prayed for the people around him, and, and when the Pharaoh said, do not pray anymore, Daniel said, no, I need to pray. I need to pray. I need to pray for you. I need to pray for the kingdom. I need to pray for me. I need to pray. And he worked. He worked. He also was an administrator. He also was a counselor to the king. He, he, didn't, he didn't just go, and I, I, I need to, to stay away and not and out of that whole system. He, he was a part of it in the sense that he sought to bless and be a benefactor to even this ungodly nation around him. He worked for their good, even as he prayed to his God. And you see this principle brought into the New Testament. And again, and thanks, Crystal, you, you, you read it already, so it's, it's fresh in our mind. We, we looked at this passage last week and, and already read it this morning. But, but I want to point out some other parts to this. This is exactly what we looked at last week when we saw principle number one about the intentionality. But here again, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here it is. Here's the words. Right? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here's the sojourning principle. As you are awaiting God's kingdom to come, as you are a people uh, who are of citizens of heaven, as you are a peculiar people set apart for him on this planet, there's a purpose and there, there's an intention that God has for you while you're here. And that is first, that with your words you may bless the people around you. That you may declare, that you may proclaim. It's a charisma, it's a proclamation. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his glorious light. And, and here's the cool part. Here's what we are to proclaim. Here's how we are to bless the nation around us as we wait for God's kingdom to come. We are to proclaim how good God is. We are to proclaim the excellencies of God to our neighbors and to our co-workers and to the classmates around us. That, that, that means that when we come together and worship on Sunday, what we are doing is we are, we are directing our attention on this great and glorious God who has a multiplicity of excellencies. And we are to consider and reflect and to meditate on God and his excellent benefits, filling up our heart that when we go to, back to work or back to school tomorrow, we've got this buzz about us. And this buzz about us is not anything that gets people excited in the world. It is our excellent God. We proclaim him among the nations. Our life and our words are a proclamation to those around us how good God is. Specifically, how good God is in our redemption. Specifically, that once 
We walked in ignorance, in darkness, and in sin. We once followed the course of the pattern of this world. We once followed under the prince of the power of the darkness of the air, Satan. We once were lost, and now we are found. We once were darkness, and now we are light. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. And so the first way we bless the nations around us in our sojourn is by remembering this is not the kingdom, but remembering there is an excellent king who has saved us. Fill up your heart on the goodness of God. Fill up your heart on the excellencies of your Savior. And go back to it again and again. And proclaim. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your classmates. Pray for them that they might see that you have something they do not have. You have a calling. You have a purpose. You have, you, you have all of that. You have all of God's benefits. But you have God himself who has called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You've got something. You've got a treasure. And then you'll work for their good. Then you work for their good. Right? The next couple of verses, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, sojourners and exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's that principle of intentionality we looked at last week. But here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice that we're to keep our conduct honorable and public. Honorable and public. So when they want to slander us, when they want to exclude us, when they want to say, well, shut the churches down, shut them down, guess what? They're like, no, that our neighbors would rise up. Our neighbors in our communities, our politicians in our communities would actually rise up and say, no, can't you see the good the church is doing in our culture? Can't you see the good that they're doing in our neighborhood? Can't you see how they're loving people? Can't you see how they're helping people? That they might actually see your good works and that the mouths of your accusers might be silenced. Peter goes on to say this is one of the ways that this work looks like. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So Peter's actually teaching the civic duty of Christians. To that, even though we do not live for this kingdom, we do not live for Canada. We don't. We're citizens of another greater country. Citizens of heaven. But as we live in Canada, as we live in this neighborhood, as we live in this community, we love our neighbors. We work hard for them. We do good for them. So, this, you know, we, we, we volunteer in our community. We, we volunteer in our community association. We get, we get involved. We live honorable and public lives. You, we show up at time on our job. We're good employees. We, 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 we know our neighbors and we, we help them in times of need. It may mean we, you might, some of you, God might raise up to be entrepreneurs. You might invent goods or services that contribute 
to the betterment of life in our community. It may mean advocate, advocating in respectful ways for the poor or the weak of our community. It definitely means that we don't live for ourselves or assume the values of success that the world assumes, but we live as kingdoms. We live as citizens of a greater kingdom. And this is something to live for. This is a vision to live our life for. As we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live first within intentionality. An intentionality to remain distinct. You are not of this world. If God has called you, if you have seen the excellencies of God in the glory of the gospel, you are no longer of this world. In fact, you're, you're, you can't be of this world because he's poured his spirit into your heart. If you're truly born again, he's poured his spirit in your heart that your values, your your common sense, your everything about who you are and your identity is not of this world any longer. And so with intentionality, we think of how do we remain and live as distinct people. And with great love and charity, we... We have God on our lips as we seek to do good to those around us. I've said it before, and we did a whole sermon series on the seeking welfare of the cities. I think it's an amazing vision of the church. That we would be the people who conspire for the good of those around us. That there's literally people outside of the walls of our church, and there are people in our neighborhoods, and there are people in your workplaces and your schools that do not know that today there are churches around the city conspiring for their good. That we may bless them. Ultimately, with the blessing of the gospel, with God's excellencies on our lips, but also simply by doing good and seeking their good.